Hello and welcome to The Solution, a wellness manifesto. I'm your host, Dr. Nate Lowenstein, and with me is my co-host, Coach Steffi. And today is episode number 13, Beef. Is it what's for dinner? All right, let's get into it. All right, everybody, welcome back. We're going to continue our conversation about protein. Um, as promised, we're going to talk a little bit about some sources of protein, um, and we're going to sort of discuss some of those sources that have gotten a bad rap that I hopefully I'll show you objectively. They don't deserve it. In order to begin this discussion on protein, we first have to divert our attention away from protein and talk a little bit about fat. So, Steph, if there's one thing that you know that you've been told about fat in your diet, especially when you were younger, what was it? Well, that fat was bad. Fat is bad. Low-fat diets and low-fat products took over the market in that time. The issue, when you remove fat, for flavor, you need to add something back in. So what do you suppose got added back in? I'm, I'm guessing it was sugar. That's right. Uh, sugar replaced fat in a lot of those processed foods. And since then, we've seen these dramatic increases in the overweight and obese populations and in chronic health issues. The thing that most folks aren't aware of is kind of how this got started. So in the late 70s, a guy named Ansel Keys published something called the Seven Countries Study. And this study was essentially what started the idea that the cholesterol in your diet, so the cholesterol that you ate, increased the cholesterol in your body. And they believe that that was what was responsible for cardiovascular disease. Another pair of scientists that go by the names of Yerushalmi and Hillebo, they disagreed with him at that time. They said that Keyes had identified a correlation between cholesterol and heart disease, but that he had exaggerated the significance and that no matter what, even when a correlation exists, that that by itself can never establish a cause. And this is an extremely important concept to understand that any correlation identified, no matter how plausible, can not completely establish a cause. That requires a different type of research. Observational research seeks to establish correlations. We look at things that happen together at the same time. So we can say, for example, um, increased ice cream consumption is linked to increased drowning. Okay. So do you think that ice cream causes people to drown? No. <laughs> no. No. What happens there is that it's the summertime. It's hot out, so more people are swimming and more people are eating ice cream. They both happened at the same time, but one has nothing to do with the other. I see. So because people are swimming and eating ice cream and more people are drowning, ice cream causes drowning. Obviously. <laughs> so that's observational research. When we see things that are happening at the same time, then... In order to establish a cause, we have to conduct an experiment that we can try to control for. So experimental research seeks to establish cause. The type of data that Keyes had collected was only observational in nature, but it set the stage for a shift in paradigm. Fat was now the enemy of health. And this led to low-fat foods, margarine, increase in trans fats, increased sugar in foods, and so on. To be clear, this, like lots of nutrition science continues to be hotly debated. I just want you to have it more for a historical perspective. This is when fat 
supposedly became bad for us when we realized that. So those two scientists I mes- mentioned earlier, Yurashalmi and Hillebo, they actually ran statistical analysis on the same data set and found that when they factored in heart disease along with what was in the data set called other diseases of the heart, which Key's research had apparently left out, the correlation between fat intake and heart disease became statistically insignificant. And in the science world, what that means is that you can't report it as being associated together. Once you once you reach statistical insignificance, you can't report them as having a relationship. When these two guys actually looked at animal fat and animal protein intake and their relationship to other causes of death in that data, they found, and this is a quote, fat calories and animal protein calories, which were seen above to be positively associated with heart disease, are here negatively associated with non-cardiac diseases. Fat now had the strongest negative association with mortality, and if you graph life expectancy, higher fat intake equaled an increase in life expectancy. So what these guys were saying is that, yes, maybe fat is related to heart disease, maybe, but it was correlated with longer life and less uh, other diseases and, and lower mortality. Typically, when I discuss this in a workshop, I have to be pretty careful to point out that what I'm saying is that fat is not your enemy. What I'm not saying is that you should just go around and eat unlimited amounts of fat and expect to be healthy. What we need to draw out of this is that it's important for us to be objectively revisiting these ideas because people have asked some reasonable questions. Is fat, particularly animal fat, the actual cause of disease? So you can look at a couple of things that Ansel Keys himself has had to say, and these are quotes from him. Quote, repeated careful dietary surveys on large numbers of persons in whom blood cholesterol was measured consistently fail to disclose a relationship between cholesterol in the diet and in the serum. So what did you get from that, Steffi? Well, what I get out of that is that they couldn't prove that by eating cholesterol, your cholesterol would go up. That's actually correct. And we're going to dig into that, I think, a little bit more here in a second. There's another quote from Keyes, and this is pretty interesting. The fact that the, this is the quote, the fact that the incidence rate of coronary heart disease was significantly correlated with an average percent of calories from sucrose in the diet, which is sugar, he explained away by saying there's an intercorrelation of sucrose consumption with saturated fat. So Keyes himself said, Yes, we see increase in fat intake in these people with heart disease. We also see an increase in sugar, but that's just because the people eating fat are eating sugar. So next up, we have the China study. The China study is a book that was written based on a large set of data accumulated in China, and it covered several epidemiological aspects. And epidemiology is just a study of what makes people sick. So there are papers and articles and documentaries that exist because of this book and its data set, and it is also not without controversy. The simplest summary I can give you of the China study is that they claim to have established that animal protein causes colorectal cancer, and here's how they did it. They showed that animal protein intake causes an increase in cholesterol. Then they showed that plant protein does not cause an increase in cholesterol, Then they showed that increased cholesterol is associated with colorectal cancer and drew the conclusion from that that animal protein causes colorectal cancer. Hopefully, you've already identified some issues here. One, they established correlations, several of them, but you cannot establish cause without experimental studies. And two, with the data they had available, they could have run a direct analysis of animal protein intake and colorectal cancer. 
They did not do that. A pretty smart dude by the name of Matt Lalonde grabbed this same set of data, and he did run a direct comparison between animal protein intake and colorectal cancer. And what he found was that animal protein intake is actually inversely associated with colorectal cancer, but the relationship fails to meet statistical significance. So can I report on it? No. No, I cannot. I can't say it causes it or doesn't cause it. So where are we going with this? Well, you may have guessed this already, but we're now going to talk about red meat. So, Steffi, we've already found out what you know about fat. What have you been told to believe about red meat? That you have to limit the amount that you eat because eating too much red meat is bad for you. What's it cause? Heart disease. Right. Heart disease and cancer. So from one of my workshops, uh, I have a quote from scientists in the field that look at this stuff, and they're pretty telling. This one is from a summary of epidemiological studies on a topic that was published in 2011. So I'm going to quote it. It's it's kind of a long one, but I'm going to get through it. The possible role of this food group, meaning red meat, on carcinogenesis is equivocal. Collinearity between red meat intake and other dietary factors, such as the Western lifestyle, high intake of refined sugars and alcohol, low intake of fruit and vegetables and fiber, And other behavioral factors like low physical activity, high smoking prevalence, high body mass index, these things limit the ability to analytically isolate the independent effects of red meat consumption. Because of these factors, the currently available evidence is not sufficient to support an association between red meat consumption and colorectal cancer. Go back to that and pay attention to the fact that he said other dietary factors and behavior factors, so how we eat, move, and think, Limit the ability to isolate red meat consumption away from all of those other things. Another quote from the same summary. The possible role that red meat consumption may play in colorectal carcinogenesis or colorectal cancer, if any at all, is unclear. No mechanisms involving red meat intake independently of other food items has been clearly established as contributing to colorectal cancer risk. So they don't, nobody has put a pin on, here's how red meat is causing cancer. As summarized, the current studies of red meat intake and colorectal cancer generally show weakly elevated associations along with some null and some inverse associations with the large majority being non-statistically significant. So again, when we look at the the summary of the data, if it's non-statistically significant, can we report on it? No, we cannot. No, we cannot. This is from the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition in 2011, a meta-analysis of prospective epidemiological studies, so go ahead and say that four times fast, showed that there is no significant evidence for concluding that dietary saturated fat is associated with an increased risk of congestive heart disease or cardiovascular disease. More data are needed to elucidate whether cardiovascular disease risks are likely to be influenced by specific nutrients used to replace saturated fat. So again, these guys are saying... We don't have evidence to show that eating saturated fat causes heart disease. We also don't have evidence to show, and we should be looking into what we replaced fat with and to see if that causes heart disease. And what did we replace fat with? Sugar. And what did Ansel Keys himself say was associated with this increase in cancer? Sucrose. Sugar. One of the top experts in this field had this to say regarding fat and animal fat intake It's widely acknowledged that the proportion of calories from total fat has no appreciable effect on risk of congestive heart disease or cancer. We've arrived at a similar crossroads for the evidence on cardiovascular effects of saturated fat. 
Although the paradigm that saturated fat is a major cause of congestive heart disease has become entrenched in the public and scientific consciousness, modern nutritional evidence simply does not support a major effect of saturated fat on congestive heart disease risk. Something that really stands out from that quote that is worth your time is when he says, quote, the paradigm that saturated fat is a major cause of congestive heart disease has become entrenched in the public and scientific consciousness. This is the issue. Once we know something to be true, is it easy to change our views on it? No. No. So the public and scientists that study this stuff genuinely believe that fat and saturated fat are the problem, right? Yes. Right. When we know something to be true, we believe it absolutely. I think it was Harvard that recently researched this same phenomenon. When people are provided evidence that challenges a previously held belief, their initial reaction is not to trust the evidence they are given that contradicts their beliefs. Their initial reaction is to cling to the belief and defend it more aggressively. For what it's worth, you can look around in your world and see this play out in the public consciousness constantly, and social media is just making it worse which is not a topic for this episode, so we're going to get back to fat and protein. What we've tried to do here, or what I've tried to do, is establish that there is a rational basis for making the assumption that fat isn't our enemy and that animal protein may not be either. Here's what's fundamentally important. One, this is provided we're not talking about overfeeding. Don't grab a bucket of lard and a spoon and go to town. Nobody's saying that's a good idea. Gross. It wouldn't taste good anyway. Gross. And two, the source of the fat and protein does matter. Just like our conversation, uh, cows and chickens and breakfast, where you get your eggs from, the cows that produce your milk, the environment your food lives in is the important thing to consider. Red meat has been made to be this villain. And I've already hinted at the fact that the redness is not likely to be the problem. There are a couple of things that happen here. One, red meat gets lumped in with processed meat. When you see the media talk about this, they'll say red and processed meat together are carcinogenic. And there's an issue with that is that processed meat has been linked to some higher risk. But then we have to be more specific. What degree of processing is actually accounting for that risk? When we make sausages, whether they're hot or cold, the fat and salt content could be what's at play here. So what do we mean by processing? Like Steph, if I said you can't have processed meat, what do you consider to be processed meat? Because I actually get this question from people like, well, aren't all meats processed once we cook them? So if you, if I asked you what's processed meat, what do you say? I, w I would say meat that no longer looks like it was on an animal, like spam. Spam is definitely, <laughs> spam is definitely processed meat. That's the lowest common denominator of processed meat. Um, what's a level up from spam, maybe? Baloney. Yep. We're moving in the right direction. <laughs> so we got spam, baloney, any bratwurst, anything that's stuffed into a casing, basically summer sausages. Oh, I love that stuff. Of course. <laughs> And then lunch meat, and that gets left out a lot. Now, if you're getting cold cuts from the deli, that's a processed meat. It's preserved, essentially, so extremely high in salt. So basically, we're talking about cold cuts, lunch meat, sausages, or anything that's in a casing. And some folks will lump all smoked meats in with that as well. And I think that all depends on what is added to the meat in the preparation. So yes, processing a meat is an issue. But red meat is not, pro a steak is not processed. The other issue with red meat is the quality of the meat. So what nutrients is that meat bringing to the table when we eat them? That question always leads me to one of my main questions that I'll ask back to someone when they'll bring me information regarding red meat and disease risk. And I'll just say, well, okay, what were the animals fed that you're talking about? If it was industrial raised, grain fed or corn fed cattle, 
then we can't account for the fact that it might be the diet of the animal rather than the color of the meat produced that is responsible. Grass-finished meat and grain-fed or corn-fed meat are not the same thing. And this is important. Lots of cows start out grass-fed and go for two weeks in a feedlot at the end of their life. Why do they do that, Steph? To fatten them up. Exactly. And that's the problem. It's the composition of those fats. When we want to get a cow fat quickly, we shove it full of corn. And corn has a different, has an, it's a higher omega-6 fat, whereas grass or grass-fed cattle is going to be higher in omega-3s. So grass-finished beef has a significantly higher amount of omega-3 compared to the industrially raised cows. One of the things that may be important with regard to our fat intake is a ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 fats. Evidence has suggested that a 2 to 1 ratio in a day is ideal. A grass-finished cow lands right on that number. A grain-finished cow can be as high as 10 to 1. And by the way, our current diet puts most Americans, a standard American diet, between 25 to 1 and sometimes as high as 40 to 1, depending on what you're eating. Oh, so like 40 to 1... Like 40 of the omega-6s and one omega-3 when it's supposed to be like two to one? Correct. That's the ratio. So there are other benefits of grass-fed cattle that go beyond our health. And I just think this is interesting stuff to point out. I mean, it's not, you don't don't walk around thinking you're saving the world because you're eating grass-fed cows, but you're doing some good. So grass grazing animals eat plants that are indigestible by humans. Basically, grass-finished cattle and game animals turn sunlight into steak using grass which is pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Meat from grass-fed animals requires only one calorie of fossil fuel to produce two calories of food. Grain and vegetable crops require five to 10 calories of fossil fuel per calorie of food. Grain-fed cattle is taking more fuel, more petrochemicals, a higher toll on the environment, so to speak. Pasture lands absorb more rainwater than other land use, providing more abundant water for wildlife and humans. And grazing lands remove carbon dioxide. Grazing plains contain 40 tons of CO2 compared to just the 26 tons found in cultivated soil that's growing the food that we're feeding to industrial cattle. That's a big difference. It's a huge difference. Another question I have when I'm talking to people about red meat is, as being problematic, and we alluded to this a bit earlier, is that most studies that end with the claim are observational. So they established a correlation. And they have a difficult time accounting for other factors. Red meat consumption often accompanies things like smoking, higher alcohol consumption, reduced intake of fruits and vegetables, and sedentary living. That's just to name a few. What would you say about everything on that list, Steph? All of that stuff will make you sick. Right. All of those are independent risk factors. And that is exactly what we were talking about earlier, that it's very hard to pull out this risk factor independent of the rest. Now, I realize this has been a roundabout way of landing on what are good sources of protein, but it needed to be done. The idea that red meat by itself is the problem has really been undone, in my opinion. The thing you need to take into consideration moving forward is that healthy meat options from ethically raised healthy animals can be a part of a healthy diet if you want them to be. A variety of fruits and vegetables in the amount of 800 grams is the foundation Above that, calculate your protein intake based on what we talked about last week. Use healthy options to get that protein intake number and do that more days than not. I mean, you're not, none of us are striving for perfection and Steph and I certainly aren't perfect in our intake. We just have more good days than bad. If this became the norm, if more people were doing this than they weren't, than weren't doing this, I genuinely believe we would start to see a huge shift. 
Now, next week, I'm actually going to be out of town collecting some free range red meat of my own. And the weekend after that is my nephew's wedding, for which I'm actually the officiant, which is pretty exciting. So it'll be a couple of weeks before the next episode is produced. I really appreciate the people that are sticking around and listening and sharing and commenting. Um, Please keep that up. Please keep telling your friends. Uh, Thank you so much for doing that. And we'll see you next week. You know what that made me think of? What? Remember that meme of like the avocado talking to like the other avocado and she's crying and he's like, oh, baby, I said you were a good fit. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. (laughs) We're going to leave that in. (laughs) All right. See you next week. Thanks so much for joining me today on The Solution, a wellness manifesto. I appreciate you being here. I hope that the information we covered in this week's episode was beneficial to you and that you can apply it into your life to help yourself move away from sickness and towards health. I'd like to thank my sponsor, Functional Performance Chiropractic and Wellness, for their ongoing support. And I'd like to appeal to you. If you know anyone who would benefit from the information we're talking about on this show, and I know you do, please refer them back to episode number one so we can all get started on the same page. I look forward to working with you and them. Until next week, take good care of yourself.